0: Well, as I said earlier on, when I slightly interrupted our service, my name is Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I have a very strong conviction that God wants to um, move in gentle and gracious restoration this morning. And uh, we'll turn to that in a moment or two. But um, I just want to respond and reflect with you for a moment before I begin to preach on uh, the words that God shared with us last week. Uh, Those of you that were present with us last Sunday morning will know that we had two messages in tongues. They are um, gifts of the Holy Spirit, where God will cause uh, one of his children to speak in a language that they haven't learned, either a language of heaven or a language of earth. And when they're used in a public context, like they were last Sunday morning, we believe uh, that the Bible teaches that somebody will interpret those words. They'll bring a sense of uh, what those words mean. Normally God word, but as it happens last week, they were declared as somebody sensing that God had, was saying something to us. Um, my responsibility as the leader of that meeting um, is to test those words, to, to make sure that they are of the Lord so that people feel safe and secure and the gifts of the holy spirit and his moving amongst us. And I did that last week, but afterwards I would also then invite our leadership team to reflect on those words and think about what God might be saying to us as a church. That's what I have always done over 30 odd years of ministry and we continue to do here. So as soon as our meeting finished last week, I asked our leadership team to test and reflect on what God had said. And um, they had a deep sense also that God was using the gifts of his spirit and speaking to us. So thank you to the two brothers that were moving in those gifts last week. We're grateful to you. And then after the service, I also received two emails from different people in our church that um, shared visions or pictures that they sensed God had given them on the morning of the meeting or the night before. So I want to just take a few minutes to um, help you unpack what we sense God is saying to us. It's an encouragement um, and just so that you are aware that we will always test what God is, uh, what we believe, what people believe God is saying and doing. That just gives you security. It's important that you know that. Uh, gifts need to be used within the context of a biblical framework. So the, the two um, words that were shared last Sunday morning in the meeting, for those of you that were not here where first of all, there was a sense in which God wanted to move by the power of his spirit amongst us and that that was a good and a glorious and a beautiful thing, but it was also a thing that brought with it responsibility, a requirement on us to examine our own hearts and be ready for what he wanted to do. Um, Part of the interpretation that was given last week was a sense that the Old Testament people of Israel, who are also a New Testament people, I'll come to that later, um, when they were following God, Um, Had to pursue him and keep in step with him, and that often they turned away and they wandered in the wilderness as a result of that for 40 years. And we had a sense, and the interpretation was given last week. There was a sense that um, there that we have to make sure that we do not allow ourselves to wander in the wilderness of wanting and longing for God to move, but never being willing to keep in step with His Spirit. And there was a very profound sense of God saying, I am doing something amongst you which is important and beautiful and strong. Keep in step with me. Uh, Make sure your hearts are right, brothers and sisters who are part of Dundonald, Elam Church. Make sure you're walking closely with the Lord because that day of God's moving in power isn't just a glorious day. It's also a day when sin can be exposed, when God can move. And there are serious consequences of that. And we believe that that was right, and from the Lord it is important, that we celebrate what God is doing, that we are rejoicing in all that the Lord is doing, and that we exhort you to keep in step with the Spirit, that we encourage you to stay close to God, and the, the two interpretations that were given last Sunday and um, pointed toward those things. The two pictures that we were given, um, one was of a pipe that had, um, had roots growing up in it and God had cleared out some of that blockage, had removed some of that blockage and was continuing to remove it because he wanted to move in power. Um, and that it was important for us to examine the roots of our own lives to make sure that we as individuals are keeping again in step with the spirit. We felt that that vision was a clear confirmation of the interpretation as well and that it was important to share that with you. And that we wanted to exhort and encourage you as a church to make sure that your roots are going deep down into God. Not into Malcolm Duncan, not into Elam, not into anything else. Into God and into his grace and into his mercy. And that you're allowing him to cleanse you and renew you and keep you close to him and keep you in step with him. And the second word that was shared was very similar to that from somebody entirely different a sense of God saying um, on these days and in these days when I am moving, I am restoring something, I'm renewing something, I'm building something up again and I want you to be part of it but you have to want to follow me and to pursue me. So I wanna leave those with you. They're important words from the Lord and I I don't want us to lose a sense of them. I have a copy of them in a folder that I will keep for our church family and uh, we will uh, come back to those and we will reflect on them. But I wanna pray now for you, watching online or here in the room, that you might be able to respond to the voice and the direction of the Holy Spirit in your life and in what you are facing. Lord, thank you that you still speak today. Thank you that you are able to hear and see and that you engage with us. Thank you for the men and the women here who are listening to your Spirit and want to follow and pursue you. And we say to you this morning, continue your work amongst us. First, as a church, as a community of faith gathered in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you have um, been gracious enough to speak to us. And we respond as a leadership team, we respond as a church saying, Lord, we wanna follow where you're leading. We want to pursue all that you have. And we thank you that you have been doing a work amongst us um, over the last little while, which is remarkable. And together we acknowledge it is your doing, it is your grace, it's your mercy and your love. And we don't want to claim any glory for it, Lord. We want to point it all back to you and say, we thank you that King Jesus is moving amongst us. We thank you that you're also moving in hearts and lives, that you are dealing with issues and pain and sorrow and heartbreak and things where people have got stuck. Thank you, Lord, that's happening. We see it day in and day out. We ask you today to help us to stay close to you, to give us the grace to face those things that we need to face and to walk in your way and be willing to be faithful to your purposes. We recognize that our holiness doesn't call down your presence, that we can't demand that you move amongst us. We can't flick a switch and force you to do something. You are the sovereign holy God and we thank you that in your sovereignty and in your holiness, you're choosing to do something amongst us Help us to keep in step with you. Individually, privately, as families, away from the glare of gatherings and what other people can see. Speak into every heart and every life and cause holiness and grace and mercy to grow and give us confidence in our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. I I know it may not be um, very commonplace for... um, words that have been shared previously to be reflected on like that and brought back to you. But it will be commonplace for us. It is important that when God speaks, we listen. Um, so thank you for walking on that journey with us. We're working through the book of Acts and we're gonna to continue to do that now. Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter three? It's the passage that we were looking at last Sunday morning and we're going to look at it again. But this time, Um, Whereas last week we looked at the first half of it and the amazing gift of the healing of the man at the gate beautiful who couldn't walk when Peter and John spoke to him in Jesus' name and he walked. The story is told in the first 10 verses. This morning I want to take just a few moments to reflect with you on the rest of the chapter and how Peter particularly responded to their response to the miracle of the man who was healed. We're going to read Acts chapter three from verse 11 down to verse 26. While he, that's the man who had been healed, clung to Peter and John and all the, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico. Utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why, are you, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety We had made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer given to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, And by faith in his name and his name itself has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now friends, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you. That is Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet like me. You must listen to whatever he tells you. And it will be that everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out from the people. And all the prophets, as many as have spoken from Samuel and those after him, also predicted these days, you are the descendants of the prophets and of the covenant that God gave to your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. If you want to hear my sermon on the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 3, and the man who was healed at the gate, please just go onto our Facebook page and click on last Sunday morning's video. You'll be able to hear it there, or onto our SoundCloud where it's uploaded. The power of the man who was healed is so significant in the story that we are looking at this morning that we're told in verses nine to 11 that there was a whole hoo-ha, that there was a, 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 a kerfuffle in the city of Jerusalem that caused people to run toward James and Peter and John. Listen to verses nine and 11 again. All the people saw him, that's the man who had been healed, walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. It's a remarkable thing. This healing that um, took place suddenly and instantaneously causes such a kerfuffle, a man whom Jesus must have walked past. because he'd never been healed. A man whom Jesus noticed but didn't heal. And yet he uses James, uh, Peter and John to bring his healing power into his life. Causes such a kerfuffle that the, whole, the people around the temple run toward him. They want to know what's happening. They are mesmerized by it. Oh, that God would move so powerfully in his church in Northern Ireland again that women and men would run to Christians saying, what is this that is happening? What is this thing that has taken place in front of me? Who is this God that you are claiming can do all of these things? I believe those days are possible, don't you? I don't only believe they're possible, I believe they're God's will. They're what he wants to do amongst us. He wants to move in sovereign power. And as he moves in sovereign power, there will be no ego big enough to claim the right that they did it. There'll be no church that can claim that they have exclusive rights to it. If and when and as God moves in this province of Northern Ireland, if he should choose to move in this church, let's be clear about this. From the very outset, it is God that is doing it, not us. It's God's grace and mercy, not just in Dundonald Elam or in any other church across the province of Northern Ireland. Anywhere where God moves, God deserves the glory. God deserves the honor. God deserves the praise. God deserves the thanks. Amen? Yeah. And when churches begin to claim that they're special, God lifts his hand of, the, of that ministry. He removes it. When people get too big for their boots, when they start to say, look at what we're doing for God, God says, no, you've got this the wrong way right. This is something I'm doing and I always want you to remember that this is about my glory, not yours. You hear that in the great defense that flows in Acts chapter 3 as Peter begins to describe and explain to those that are gathered what has been happening. By the way, last Sunday we prayed for a whole range of people here and a number of people have come back to me saying that God has touched them. He's strengthened them. He has been touching bodies. He's been touching minds. A lady asked me to pray for her who hasn't been able to sleep for three or four years and she slept every night this week. Another woman who wasn't able to move a part of her body as I prayed with her last week, began to move that part of her body. God is doing something amongst us and we want to give him thanks and praise and honor. I've been invited into family situations this week where people need a miracle and some of them are here this morning sitting in this building. There are men and women that have been watching online that have been standing when we've been inviting them to receive prayer, kneeling by their bedsides, claiming uh, God's grace into their lives, asking him for mercy, that haven't been in church for months or years. And some of them are sitting right here in this building this morning. God is moving around the world. I've had um, emails and messages from Peru, from Bahrain, from um, Kuwait, from China, from Italy, from Germany, from France, from England, from Scotland, from Northern Ireland, from the Republic of Ireland, from the United States, from Canada, from Australia, from New Zealand. Men and women saying, God touched me during that service. God is doing something in my heart and in my life. How do we defend it? How do we explain it? How do we help people understand it? Peter does that in verses 11 to 26 of this passage. And as he does, I want to explore it very briefly with you and help you to understand what sits at the heart of how Peter understands what God was doing on that day. Because if we can get what he understood to be happening, then we can understand why God moves when he moves amongst us. I call... Peter's response a great defense and if you turn in your Bibles to his general epistle in 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, verses 14 to 16 the older Peter writing to believers Jewish believers that have been dispersed across Asia Minor he says this to them in 1 Peter chapter 3 about their conduct and their character verses 14 to 16 Even if you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. I wonder if Peter, as he wrote those words, remembered the day that the people of the leaders of the temple in the Jewish nation came running towards him because the man who had been healed was walking around. Because when you examine what Peter says in Acts chapter three, you realize that he gives a defense of his faith. He gives a defense of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he does it with reverence and gentleness and respect, but he does it with courage He does it with conviction. He does it with faith. He does it with expectation. And he does it with a realization that he's going to end up in bother. As a result of his defense, he and John are put through some pretty harrowing times, yet Peter still gives his defense. We can learn from that ourselves. So to the defense itself. From verses 11 to 26, Peter helps them understand why he believes they have witnessed a miracle. He wants them to understand a number of things. I'm going to run through them very briefly with you because they're not obvious. Firstly, I want you to look um, in the story in Acts chapter three at verse 13. As Peter begins to explain what is happening, he says this to them, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. Peter roots what they have seen, the healing of a man who couldn't walk in the Jewish nation's greatest story. It's a story called the Exodus. The verse that he uses, the phrase that he uses, the description of who who, um, God is, that he uses in verse 13, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so forth is taken directly from Exodus chapter three, verse six. And that's the passage in the Old Testament where God appears to Moses and says, I have come to set my people free. I have heard their cry. I have seen their sorrow. I've seen the burden. I've seen their oppressors. And I have come down to set them free. What makes it really interesting is that in Luke chapter 20, verse 37, almost the last thing that Jesus says before he is arrested, he uses the same verses. For Peter, for John, for the early church, there was a clear and important central understanding of what God was doing in Jesus Christ. And that was he had come to deliver his people. He had come to set them free. That's why Peter uses this powerful phrase, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that came and met Moses, the God that gave Israel definition, the God that gave them an identity and a purpose, the God that broke into history through a burning bush has broken into history through a son called Jesus Christ. And he wants the Jewish religious leaders and those watching to understand what you are witnessing is not just a miracle, not just a man getting up. It's not just a life being changed. What you are witnessing is the great deliverance of planet earth by the God that made it and has come to redeem it. And when one day put all things right, he uses this story as a powerful route. And he says, this miracle points back to the great deliverer, the one who was able to set everybody free. The one who's able to break every chain and bring hope to every heart and transform every life that will call upon him. They didn't expect to hear that. But it was important. They needed to understand that Jesus Christ is rooted in God's great redeeming story. A miracle is never just for its own sake. I could take you to churches across the United Kingdom and across Northern Ireland and across the world who live for the miracle it's all about the miracle it's all about a moment it's all about saying you'll never be sick you'll never be poor you'll never struggle but nowhere in the bible nowhere in the new testament is a miracle used just for the sake of making people happy it always points to god the great deliverer God who has come and interrupted time and history and has broken out of eternity into our daily lives to bring his deliverance to the world. What if that's what God is beginning to do? What if that's what's beginning to stir in the hearts of a tiny church on East Link Road and Cumber Road? What if God is breaking into our midst, not so that we have great services, not so that we say, oh, I really love that church. The seats are so comfortable. The heating is amazing. Love the shape of it. Nothing beats this snazzy pastor. He's wearing a new jacket today. Wonder where he did. did he get that handkerchief? Is that a new tie like your hair you could do with a haircut? But you're all right. Instead of coming and going and saying, well, I liked it, I enjoyed it, I got something out of it. What if God is saying to us, I want to break into Northern Ireland culture. I want to break into Ireland, I want to break into Europe, not just through Dundonald Elam, but through my church. I want to see men and women changed and transformed because the great deliverance that I began in my son Jesus Christ on the cross isn't finished yet. There's still work to do. Peter roots this miracle in the great Exodus, the great story of deliverance and unapologetically with passion and faith and commitment and expectation to you and to those joining us across the airwaves on um, the internet. I say this, I still believe God wants to bring deliverance to his people. I still believe he wants to set people free. He wants to heal, he wants to restore, he wants to renew, he wants to deliver, he wants to cleanse, he wants to move in miraculous power and in conversion and in new life, not so that a church gets a a good name, but so that he gets the glory and men and women believe that he's still the living God that can transform and change lives. There is none of us in this room, none of you online, who are so far gone that God cannot reach into your heart and touch you. There's nothing that you have done that could exclude the great deliverer from coming into your heart and your life and impacting you. The second thing that he roots it in, and you would miss it very easily in verse seven, in verse 13, is he describes his Savior Jesus, the one who has healed, as God's servant. The word that is used is an unusual word in Greek, which is a an attempt to replicate a word in Hebrew. Sometimes it's translated son, but actually, servant is better, I think, in this context. It's a word that is borrowed from a passage in the Old Testament that is recorded in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It speaks of Jesus as a suffering servant who has borne our iniquities and carried our sin and taken our weaknesses and by whose stripes we are healed. A Jesus who faced rebuke and ridicule and suffered a great deal a servant who laid his life and his will down that God might have his way and purpose through him. If Peter is making a point about the Exodus, quoting Moses, he's also making a point about the Savior being one who will suffer, who has borne sin and pain and by whose stripes we are healed. He goes on to make a direct um, connection for them. He tells them that on the day that Jesus died, if you read Acts chapter three, there were, two, there were others who died that day. One of them was called Barabbas. And he points out to them that they chose to let the guilty one go free and punish the innocent one. And he's making a point about this great deliverance for all humanity, for all people. And it is rooted in the great deliverer who sends his servant so that you, the guilty, can go free. Who carries your pain and your sorrow and your sin and mine and sickness. Who carries my brokenness. And Peter points directly back to the day that Jesus was crucified and paints a picture of Isaiah chapter 53. And he says to them, you chose to let a a guilty man go free and to kill an innocent man. And that innocent man chooses to let you go free if you will let him and take your punishment. What better news could there be than that? A powerful grounding of this story. And as you will begin to see, I have no doubt, what's happening here is Peter is rooting them in their own story. He's rooting them in a, in a, in a tale, in a promise that God has made to them. By the way, as an aside, in his Reminding of the Jewish people that are listening to him that they crucified Jesus and they killed him and let the guilty man go free. Please never assume that the New Testament suggests that the Jewish people are somehow blighted or punished or 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 cursed because of what happened in Jerusalem. That is not in the New Testament. You can't find it anywhere. There's nowhere actually in the New Testament that suggests for one moment that God will break his promises to Israel. Rather, Peter and John and Paul and all of the other apostles point back to Israel and say God will keep his promise to Israel and keep his promise to the church. He will draw them into living relationship with him. And in fact, Peter's arguments across this are rooted in the Jewish story. I want to ask you this morning to deliberately and intentionally continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem to pray for the men and women that live in that city and in that land and to pray that God would draw the Jewish nation unto himself, that their eyes would be lifted to the Messiah, the King of life that Peter is talking about here. So he roots their story in the Exodus and he roots their story in the servant Jesus. But then he uses a wonderful and powerful phrase to describe Jesus in verse 14. He describes him as the holy and just one. That's a phrase that will appear in Acts again and again. It appears in Acts 4, 27 or something similar to it and in verse 30. It appears in Acts chapter seven, verse 52. And it appears again in Acts chapter 22, verse 14. And there are two things that Peter is doing here. Again, going back to the story of who Jesus is, but he's describing him as holy and just. And I want you to remember who it is that's describing Jesus. Here's a man that lived with him up close and personal for three and a half years. And what he is saying is, this man was the real deal. Everything in his life fitted with what he said. He never did a thing wrong. He always obeyed what God wanted. He was kind and compassionate and pure. He's making the point here so that they understand that they let the holy and just one die and they released the guilty one. But his description of Jesus is so beautiful, so powerful because he knew him. He's describing this friend, this leader, this Messiah, this rabbi, but he's describing him as holy and just. The closer you get to Jesus, the holier you will discover that he is. The more just and beautiful and alluring and wonderful and life-giving he is. You, You can never use enough words in English to describe the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. He is beyond compare, The sheer beauty and faithfulness of his life inspires me every day. In verse 15, Peter describes him as the prince of life. Your Bible might say the author of life. Actually, the word author is quite helpful. He's the one that initiates life. An author is the person from whom the ideas flow. The one that writes the story, the one that knows the end from the beginning. I know many of you won't have read it, but J.K. Rowling, when she wrote the Harry Potter series, wrote the last sentence before she wrote the first one. God, in his sovereignty, wrote the last sentence of the universe before he wrote the first one. And he knows how your story ends. And if you're a Christian, see if this is complicated. Here's how your story ends. God wins. Full stop. The devil doesn't get the last word in your life. Evil doesn't get the last word in your life. The devil doesn't get the last word in the universe. Do you realize that? Evil doesn't get the last word in Northern Ireland. Hatred and fear and anxiety and isolation and... Uh, destruction. Don't get the last word in any part of the universe. God gets the last word. The author of life knows how the story ends. Peter is doing something deliberately here. He's helping them understand that. And then in verses 17 through to 26, the second half of this amazing defense, I want to try and help you understand what he does. He fundamentally lifts their eyes and points them to the end story. But he does that by saying this to them simply and profoundly. The end of the story is the restoration of the whole universe. The whole nine yards will be changed and transformed. God wins. And he points back to Jesus Christ and he says, and I know that he wins because he has already won in Jesus's life. The restoration I'm telling you is going to come in the rest of the universe is seen in Jesus because he was dead and he's alive and he's never going to die again. The victory that I'm telling you is for the whole world and and is absolutely guaranteed is guaranteed because the one you killed rose again. There's an empty tomb where he used to be and he's now living and alive and full of glory and that's the end of the universe because that's the end of his story. And again and again, Peter draws them back to the resurrected Jesus. And he says, because he's resurrected, all who are in him will be resurrected. But don't shorten it to that. He says, because he's resurrected, the universe will be transformed. The whole created order will be changed by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Oh, don't get too excited. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. I want to try and help you understand what I mean. Um, not, well, a few years ago, I have a friend who has a, a, a lovely boat. I love sailing. And every year I would go with him sailing. Last time I went, I broke my leg in four places, but that's another story. <laughs> but on one particular day, we, we anchored the boat um, in, uh, at the bottom of the Isle of Lewis. Um, there's a little loch called Loch Sceveig, Look, I have to laugh. It's nothing to do with the sermon. Just think I need to tell you. I have a friend who's staying with us for a couple of days called Christy Wimber. She is John Wimber, the founder of the vineyard's daughter-in-law. And she's at our house that we have. We have a house in in County Antrim. She's staying there for a few days. And we were driving across Belfast and she said, what's that water out there? I said, that's Belfast Loch. She said, what is it? I said, Belfast Loch. She went, Belfast What? I said, loch? And she said, are you spitting at me? I said, no. I said, English people can't say loch. But I thought Americans could. And she went, loch. She couldn't say it. Nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought it was funny. Why did I say that? What? ceiling? That was it. Thank you so much, Davy. Davy, you will get a tenner tomorrow for listening. I was in Loch Scaveig which is the bottom of the Isle of Lewis. And it's, um, it's a, it's, it's a uh, you can't get into it unless you're in a boat. And it's, a, um, it's like a, cycle, a, a cylinder. You, you look up and all you can see is the edge of the volcano. You, you're, you're sleeping for the night in the bottom of a volcano that is dormant. And when the wind comes in, it, it can be as smooth as anything, but when the wind comes in this narrow entry, there's no way out. So it then starts to go... It swirls around you. It's amazing, amazing. Um, Because I'm naive and I trusted the people that were sailing the boat, there was a storm that night and they were all panicking, thinking that we were going to die and I just slept all the way through it. It was amazing. But the following day, we got up and went for a walk on the bottom of Lewis, which you can only get to by foot. It was a scorcher of a day. And um, we had some Diet Cokes and lemonades and uh, some iced tea and stuff on the boat. And we, we decided we were gonna walk back to get it. And we were really looking forward to it. We were all excited about getting back and getting our tuna and onion sandwiches and our cheese and onion sandwiches and having a lovely time sitting in the boat in the heat of the scorching day. We were really looking forward to it. When around the corner came one of the people that was sailing with us with a huge rucksack on his back. He hadn't come with us. He'd been working that morning uh, on the boat. And, and he met us halfway And he put the rucksack down and he opened it and he took out a bottle of Diet Coke. He took out a bottle of Diet Club Orange, for goodness sake, can't get better than that. And, And he said, I thought you'd be thirsty, so I've brought this stuff for you. And we were like, get in, this is so great. We were looking forward to getting back to the boat to get these diet drinks and, well, some of them not diet, to get these drinks and to get cooled down. But he came off the boat and met us halfway That's the point that Peter is making about Jesus. The Jewish understanding of restoration was that God would put things right. And it sits at the heart of the New Testament's understanding of what he was doing in Jesus Christ. If you read Ephesians 1:10, Colossians 1:20, Revelation 21, verse 1, 2 Peter chapter three, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, Romans chapter 8, verse 21, what you discover is that again and again in the New Testament, the writers say this, God is changing the world through Jesus sin will be no more, shame will be no more, pain will be no more, disruption will be no more, injustice will be no more, death will be no more, sickness will be no more, sorrow will be no more, sadness will be no more. They're describing the end of all things in Jesus Christ. But then this is what they do. They say, and if you want to know what that looks like, if you want to know why we're sure he's already done all of that in Jesus He has stepped out of eternity into history. And he's come and he said, I know you want to get home because you're hot and thirsty. I know you're tired and you're looking forward to getting to the end of this road when all of this stuff is dealt with. But I have come to show you that it's already started and it's secure and nothing can change it because I have defeated all of those things and I am already complete. And the power of that lifts the early church. They didn't get saved because they were just afraid of hell. They got saved because they heard of a God who could plunder hell. They heard of a God that could touch broken lives and give back hope to people that are in despair. And when they wondered, how could this be? All they had to do was point to their savior and say, because he's already done it in him. He has a resurrection body. He has defeated death. He has overcome sin. He has banished the enemy. He has brought down principalities and powers. He has brought fairness and justice to the world. It's all done in him and he has gone away. And when he comes back, it will be done across the globe and across the universe. And there won't be a square inch of this planet where his reign and his rule does not impact them. Now choose whether you want to live in the darkness or in the light. Who in their right mind would live in the darkness? The fundamental idea that sits at the heart of this sermon is not simply that a man got healed. It is that a man got healed because Jesus Christ has done it all. And the world can never be the, the same again. The fundamental idea that sits at the heart of the Pentecostal church is not miracles, it's not tongues, it's not even the Spirit. The fundamental thing that sits at the heart of good Pentecostal theology is that the Spirit has brought the reign and the rule of God into the lives of men and women and he keeps pointing to Jesus because Jesus has achieved it all. And we invite people to encounter that and engage in that. Oh. I told you earlier on that Peter grinds this sermon in Isaiah. And in Moses. But he does more than that. In verses 22 and 24 and 25, he goes back almost over the Old Testament and pray see, and he mentions Samuel and Abraham. He points to Isaiah again in verse 19 when he says that our sins can be blotted out. It's a particular phrase taken from Isaiah 43. 25, where something is taken out of a page that has already been written into it. It's removed forever. Why is he doing that? Because fundamentally, and I hope you can understand this, it's why I am so passionate about how the church and the Old Testament sit together, the old and the new sit together, how the people of God who are Jewish and the people of God who are Gentiles come together in one new people. He does it on purpose because... What he doesn't do is proof text. He doesn't take a verse here and a verse there and kind of string it together in the hope that it gives people a bit of an encouragement. Peter in this sermon roots the purpose in the story of Jesus in the story of Israel in the Old Testament. In the verse, the story that shapes the rest of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, you are blessed in order to be a blessing and through you the whole world shall be blessed. Don't worry, I'm not talking about replacement theology and Zionism at the moment. I'm talking about this great and powerful story. And what Peter does is say, let me remind you of your big story. Abraham. Who gives you definition? Moses, who gives you purpose and law and, ra- and 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 boundaries. Samuel, who is one of your prophets. Isaiah, who is one of your prophets. He takes the fundamental, huge story with all of its complexities and confusion in the Old Testament, and he says, "This is all about one man. This whole story, with all of the books and the..." cultures and the languages and all of the stuff that can really confuse us. 39 kings and the divided kingdom, three in the United Kingdom, arguing over a a building project and tax for the temple, being deported to Assyria and Babylon and Persia, when Daniel fits and Jeremiah fits and Malachi fits and Obadiah fits and Jonah and, and, and Habakkuk and Haggai and Zechariah how you get together with the kings and the chronicles and and Samuel and where David and Saul fit. He takes this whole complex, beautiful story and he says, all the major players point to Jesus. The whole story of the universe points to Jesus. Jesus. No wonder the early church grew. It had a passion for the kingdom of God and its purposes. And in order to enter it all, Peter says Gentiles will be part of this. Jews will be part of this. God's kingdom will extend. In verse 19 and verse 26, he says, do you want to know how to get in? Do you want to know how you gain entry to this remarkable story? You repent. You get on your knees and say, God, I need you and I'm sorry. You'll never get to heaven just by singing and praising. You'll never get to heaven by reading the Bible. You'll never get into this just by praying. There is a doorway into this remarkable life-giving story and it is repentance. We turn from ourself. We turn from our own strength. We turn from our own reliance. We turn from our own ideas. We turn from our own power and we look to Jesus. The Jesus who has already proved that everything is done. So where does that leave you today? Stop carrying all the stuff that you're trying to carry. Stop trying to sort it all out. Stop trying to make it all fit. Stop trying to be Jesus. And say to him today, I turn to you that you're refreshing in your life and your power may flow into me. I need you, I need your healing touch, I need your power, I need your grace, I need your strength. You don't need a degree to understand that. I wonder what the church in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom would look like if we started preaching a gospel that changes the world. That can reach into the human heart and transform it, that can transform a community and transform a society. What do you get out of bed for in the morning? Because you have to. (laughs) From a paycheck, I get out of bed every day because I get to be part of this. I'm invited into the greatest story ever told with an outcome that nobody could describe. To stand in a victory that will last forever. To be free from all of the sorrow and the pain. And that means that everything that I go through is worth it. The heartbreak, the sadness, the burials, the loss, the unanswered questions, the prayerlessness, the confusion, the backstabbing, the church fighting. It's all worth it. Why? Because Jesus has won. And I am part of a vanguard that's saying into the world, into Northern Ireland culture, our future doesn't have to be the same as our past. Belfast doesn't have to always be known as the city with the hotel that's been bombed the most. Don't really like the Europa anyway, but that's another story. (laughs) We could be known as the city where God began to move in Europe again. We could be known as a city where God heals people, where God breaks down sin, where he brings families together. Why not? You might say, well, we're too small. I think Judah thought they were too small. I think David thought he was too small. I think Jacob thought he was too small. I think God uses small people I think he uses insignificant communities. I think he speaks into people who know that they don't have what it takes and he raises them up and does something for it. Let me let you into a secret and I don't want this to frighten you. My vision isn't that God will fill our, our building or we'll build another one and he'll fill that. That's not the vision that God has given me. The vision I believe God has given me is of millions of people across Europe touched by the power of the gospel. Churches planted Prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, theologians, businessmen, politicians, doctors, lawyers, businesswomen, leaders. Raised up in the province of Northern Ireland and on the island of Ireland and sent around the world. An awakening that will make the great awakening look like the lesser awakening. Because God is able to do it. All he needs is a generation of people who believe that the gospel is strong enough, that Jesus is faithful enough, and God the Father is loving enough. And what if he wants to do that in you today? Let's pray. We come by the power of the Holy Spirit to the universe creating God to the world redeeming God, to the Savior who sent his Son to die on a cross for us. And we believe that all things are possible. We ask you to breathe your power into this meeting and across the airways by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Help us to trust you and to live for you and to lay our lives before you. And in these moments, Lord, would you move in sovereign power Set people free that are trapped in sin. Open lives that have been blighted by sorrow and shame and have lost the ability to hope. Come, Lord Jesus, and have your way amongst us. I'm not going to make these appeals long, but I do believe it's right to make them. If you are online, then respond to these appeals by just emailing us, my colleague, pip at dundonaldelam.church or myself, Malcolm, at dundonaldelam.church. Or just send us a private message on the Facebook page and we'll get back to you. If you once walked with Jesus and your life has become bogged down by sorrow or despair or frustration or disappointments, and today you're saying, I want to give my life to this again. I want to lay my life at your feet, Lord. I want a bigger vision of who you are and I'm giving you my pain and my sadness and my despair and my brokenness and I'm asking you to breathe in sovereign grace your life and spirit into me once more. Then put your hand up. Nobody else is looking. I just want to see it and pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, who else? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And if you're here this morning for the first time or for the umpteenth time or you're online and you've never committed your life to Jesus and actually what you're saying today is I need to become a Christian. I'm turning from everything that I've done wrong and I'm laying my life at the feet of Jesus because I wanna live for you, Lord. Forgive me and cleanse me and renew me and give me new life. I want to serve you. If you need God's grace and mercy in your life, online or here, email us if you're online so we can pray for you. But if you're here, and in a moment when we take communion, you want to take it because you want to say, I am now a child of God. Then again, put your hand up. Nobody is looking. Is there anyone here? Thank you so much. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Don't be afraid. Don't be nervous. Don't be anxious. Lord, I want to thank you for the work of your spirit in this place this morning. The work of restoration, the work of new life. Come to my sister and give her all that she needs by the power of your Holy Spirit. Set her free Let her know that her salvation is real and genuine and that she can trust you. Thank you for your power at work in our midst. Continue to move by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Before we move to communion, I'd like to ask you not to give me a round of applause. Please don't do that. Uh, But I think sometimes it's right to just give God a clap offering because we want to say we believe you, we trust you and we celebrate your goodness. Let's give him a clap offering, shall we? Thank you, Lord.